and there was darkness in the land until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. And the sun's light failed. Yeah. So it was dark for like three hours. And for those three hours, Jesus said nothing, spoke nothing. Um, and there isn't anything recorded from his mouth. But at the end of those three hours, so 3 p.m. now, been hanging there for six hours, Jesus spoke again. And Mark 15, 34 tells us that he quoted Psalm 22, which we'll look at next week, where at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, that's an important thing we're going to think about next week. But as soon as he said that, John 19, 28, the same chapter we're in tonight, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. At that point, they give him sour wine. By the way, there's an interesting connection we'll look at when we come to that. Jesus' uh, first miracle was what? In the Gospel of John, was turning water into wine. And it was the best wine. You say, you know, he got on to him. You know, usually we give the best, you know, the best wine first, and then the best wine last. Turning water into wine. Here on the other end, on the other end of the spectrum, wine enters in, and the last thing he does is the bitter wine, it's the sour wine. You know, it's pretty powerful. But then, when John nineteen thirty, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, "It's finished." And he bowed his head and he gave up, gave up his spirit. Actually, um, as he gave up his spirit, Luke tells us in Luke twenty three forty six that Jesus called out with a loud voice. And said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last until Sunday. And that, that were, those are the seven things he said on the cross, the seven words of the cross. And each of those statements is, is rich. It's, it's, it each gives us a different angle on what he was doing for our salvation um, on the cross. And like I said, tonight we're going to think about this third statement. Woman, behold your son. And son, behold your mother. Uh, I want to read this passage. We're going to start, uh, we're in John 19. We're going to start reading in verse 16 to get a little context and read through verse 27. All right, so beginning in verse 16. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, in which, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It's, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. They wanted, no matter who walked by, they wanted them to see their mocking of him. Read it in their own language. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each shoulder, for soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, 
and for my clothing they cast lots. That also is Psalm 22, by the way, where he quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, he took the disciple to his home. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we need your help tonight, as we do every night, as we do every, every moment of every day, but certainly every, every moment that we spend over this, your precious word. This, is, this we confess by faith is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. Give us eyes to see the truth that was here. Give us minds to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage. Give us hearts to receive and embrace what he said. Love the truth and love Jesus through the truth. Don't, don't let us be like, the, like Jesus said the Pharisees were when, when Jesus told them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it is they that bear witness about me. So help us to marvel, yes, that this is your word, but help us to see Jesus more clearly in it and love him for it. And give us, give us wills to obey whatever you lead us to do. All for the glory of Jesus in us, in this, your church. Amen. All right, so you see those last two verses of the passage we just read, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. One tradition, there's, a, there's more than one tradition, but one of the traditions, so it's hard to nail down if it was exactly true, but one of the traditions holds that Mary lived another 11 years in John's care before she died. Um, there's no way to be sure about that, but it's a sobering and powerful scene. I want to think about this, this statement, these two statements, really, from a couple of different angles. Really, the most natural way to think about it is to think about what he says to his mother and then what he says to John the disciple. And that's how I want to do it, But because each, each one has its own thing to say. What I want to do, though, is I want to take them in reverse order. I want to, I want to look at verse 27 first and then come back to verse 26. The, verse 27, where uh, he says, Behold your mother, and think through what Jesus was meaning when he said that to John. Now what, what, and, and what was he doing at a deeper level through that statement for our salvation? And secondly, after that, go back to verse 26 where he says to Mary, his mother, woman, behold your son, thinking through what he was meaning when he said that. And why did he word it like he did? Jesus, Because Jesus is saying, or at least showing, much more than it seems like at first glance. So let's think about it. Uh, a little more closely and think first about what he says when he, he stands and he looks at Mary uh, and looks at John and he says, Behold your mother. That's what he says in verse 27. What is he doing? When he looks at John and he says, Behold your mother, and from that hour he took her to his home. What's he trying to teach us? There's a, I, as I just dwelt on this verse, there's a, to me there's at least three things. Like I prayed, Whenever we come to Scripture, you, you, Jesus himself said over and over again, the Scriptures talk, 
point to me. The scriptures, even in the Old Testament, the things that are, these, those things are written about me. So every scripture you come to, I want to see Jesus in it. What does it teach me about Christ? And this, this behold your mother, to me, it, as I reflected on it, it tells me at least three, three things. It shows me three things about Jesus um, in these things that he says uh, to John about Mary. We learn the sympathy of Christ. The sympathy of Christ. We learn the love of Christ. And we learn the obedience of Christ for our salvation. Those first two things are beautiful, sympathy and love. But the last one is the most significant, his obedience for our salvation. But let's, I just want to dwell on each of those things. His sympathy, his love, and his obedience. First, when Jesus says, and looks at John, he says of Mary, Behold your mother. Let's think about his sympathy scene in that. What do I mean by that? Remember that, that Hebrews 4.15 says about Jesus, For we do not have a, pre, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Think about that. It just means when you're, when, when you're suffering, it, it tells us more than, oh, well, your sins are forgiven. He knows how to comfort you in a way that only God can comfort you. He can reach your, your heart and comfort you and and, 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 and you feel sympathized with by the Lord in a way that, uh, that he can do it because he was tempted. He was tempted and he suffered in every way that we do. And, and certainly he can, just by virtue of the fact that he was on suffering unjustly on a cross, he can sympathize with you when you feel like you're suffering unjustly in some way. Or you're suffering because of someone else's sins or someone else's shortcomings. But God just... It's, it's, it's interesting to dig down into this thing because we see the sympathy of Christ here not just in the fact that he's hanging on a cross while he said it, but in what he said. Behold your mother. Because think, think about what that implies. When he looks at John and he says, Behold your mother. Think about what that implies in that he's telling John that he's now going to be the caretaker for his mother when he's gone. Just try to think realistically about that. What does that imply? It implies at the very least it, that it most likely Jesus' earthly father had died at some point. That Joseph had died at some point. You don't, get, you don't gather that. Because if, jo- if Joseph was still alive, certainly he would have taken care of Mary, right? So... You, even when he found out, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit with Jesus, he decided not to divorce her. He had pre- previously decided to divorce her quietly. He changed his mind. So you don't get the sense that he said, well, I made the mistake and he divorced her later. The, the presumption is he died at some point, right? Because had he still been living, like I said, there would have been no need for John to care for Mary. So what does that tell you? At, at, at some point, Jesus had suffered the death of his earthly father. You know? Like, so he knows how to sympathize with us when we, when we suffer loss in that kind of way. When we suffer the loss of friends or family. Right? I, I, don't, know, I don't know if you've ever dealt with that. Like, be it parents or grandparents or friends. I mean, I've had friends, I've had more than one friend die 
at a ridiculously young age. You know, I had a good friend of mine die as a freshman in high school. Crazy. And so that, that, that loss is, 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 is deep. It, the pain is deep. Christ suffered the, the loss of his earthly father, most likely. He knows how to sympathize with you in those times. And for the same reason, no doubt when Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, died, Jesus took on huge responsibility in his family. Think about that. After the death of his, of his, of his father, hence he's the one making the decision as to who's going to take care of mom when I'm gone. He's got to make that decision. And I don't know if any of you have felt like the, 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 the great, a weight, a weight of great responsibility over something that you didn't feel like you were ready to bear yet or you didn't know it was going to come that quickly or before you thought you would have to deal with it. If you've never done that, you probably will at some point. Because Christ can sympathize with you in that situation. Like when you feel like you're bearing a great weight of responsibility, Christ was bearing a great weight of responsibility over his family, the caring for his mother when he was on the cross. He was bearing that responsibility so much that even as he is hanging, dying on a cross, that's on his mind. That's on his mind. You know, who's going to take care of my mother? I'd, I'd point out one more thing about this. Didn't Jesus have brothers? Half-brothers, right? Yeah, he had, he had brothers. Two of them, in fact, later on, later on, two of them would contribute letters to our New Testament. James, right, and Jude. We're half-brothers of Jesus. But where were they here? Where were they here? At the crucifixion. And why couldn't they take care of Mary? Right? It would seem to be legitimate questions, but here's the thing. There isn't any indication that they were even at Jesus' crucifixion. It's possible that they didn't live in it's possible they lived in Capernaum, didn't live in Jerusalem. But remember, what time of year was Jesus being crucified? Passover? Don't you think they would have made the trek? They did earlier in John. At Passover, you'd think they'd be in Jerusalem for that. No indication they were even here. Furthermore, the last time you encountered Jesus' brothers in John's gospel, they didn't seem to have a very high opinion of their brother. This is what we read of his brothers in John 7. Now the Jews... Uh, Feast of Booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. It doesn't sound like Jesus had a perfect family. Right? They were almost mocking him in his unbelief, in their unbelief. And even when it came, so much so that even when it came to his very public execution, during Passover in, Jer in Jerusalem, they didn't bother to come. And they took apparently no initiative to care for their widowed mom, or soon-to-be widowed mom, who was standing there watching her son die. Jesus didn't have a perfect family. 
If you're sitting here tonight and you feel like, I don't have a perfect family. <laughs> My family's messed up in some ways. Jesus can sympathize with you when your family's not perfect in every way. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way as we are. It's not an exaggeration. Jesus faced every root temptation, every basic, every basic situational hardship. Details change. Basic situational hardships don't. He knows how to sympathize and comfort us in any of those. But we see not just the sympathy of Christ in all these different ways when we suffer unjustly. The carrying the weight of responsibility. Messed up family. But we see the love of Christ in that as he hung dying, his thoughts were on the welfare of his mother. After he was gone, he was, the live, he was in that moment the living embodiment of what Paul would tell the Philippians when he told us to consider others more significant than ourselves and describe that as having the same mind in us that it was in Christ Jesus. But more than that, we see the obedience of Christ. We see his sympathy or his ability to sympathize. We see his love. We see his obedience for our salvation in that statement. Because when he ensures the welfare of his mother, when he's gone, what is he ultimately doing? He's honoring his mother. And quite frankly, in doing that, he's, even though he had already died, he's honoring his father too. In, in ensuring that his widowed wife is well taken care of. Does that sound familiar? That's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. So even as he was dying on the cross for our sins, he's still being obedient to the law for our salvation. Right? There are two ways, to give you a quick theology lesson, there's two ways that theologians talk about the obedience of Jesus for our salvation. They, they describe it as two, two kinds, active obedience and passive obedience. Active obedience and passive obedience. So what is that? Passive obedience um, refers to the suffering that Jesus suffered uh, for his people. That's, where we're saying, that's why when we call, we call uh, his death his, 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 the passion of Christ, that's the same root, passive passion. The passive obedience is his suffering for us. That he, not just on the cross, but his whole life. The fact that he, as holy God, took on human flesh and came into a broken world. Suffered the loss of an earthly father. Suffered the abuse of mocking brothers. But his, his passive obedience is most clearly seen on the cross. But his active obedience is his obedience to the law at every point. His obedience to God at every point of his earthly life for our salvation. What we see him doing here, even in his last hours, honoring his mother in, in obedience to the fifth commandment. We, we, and we need both of those. We need his active obedience. We need his passive obedience. We need every kind of obedience he has for our salvation. Because in his, in his passive obedience, he took our sins on himself so that we could be forgiven. But in his active obedience, he was obedient positively to every command of God so that we could receive his righteousness. So he receives our sins, we receive his righteousness. He receives our sin because of his passive obedience. We receive his righteousness because of his active obedience. 
It's incredible that Jesus that, that Jesus was telling us all that in three words spoken to his disciples. Behold your mother. We see the sympathy of Christ, the love of Christ, the obedience of Christ. That's not all he said in those three words. He said also in verse 26, woman, behold your son. And it's pretty simple. It's pretty simple um, what he's saying there in verse 26. You know, because in, in a way, it's just, it's just the flip side of what he said to, the, to, to John. Like, in the sense that he was informing um, John to take Mary and take care of her. He's informing Mary here, hey, John's going to take care of you. That's what he's doing. And, and implied in that is all the stuff that we just said. But really what I want to draw your attention to, really what he says here is to the point, so there's not a, a ton to dwell on here, but I want to draw your, your, statement, your, your eyes to the fact that um, it's how he words it. It's the fact that he doesn't call her by name. He doesn't say, Mom, behold your son. Mother, behold your son. Did he say Mary? Does he? Woman. Now, that, that wasn't a term of disrespect in that day. In fact, I've already made mention of his first miracle in John 2 of um, turning water into wine. When Mary comes, his mother, oh, they run out of wine. Jesus said, woman, what does that have to do with me? literally he says what woman what to me to you <laughs> that's an idiom i don't know why i'm laughing at that that's funny though <laughs> woman what to me to you um what does that have to do with me is what it means woman um but he calls her woman not mary not mother can we make a big deal out of that is there really significance to that well yeah i think so just stop for a moment and think about how you think of Mary. Think of why you think she's a blessed woman. Just think. What's he doing when he says, woman, behold your son? Because he is, he is taking her mind off the fact that he is her son dying. And he's putting her mind on the fact that he's her savior dying. Right? Over a hundred years ago, the British Anglican priest J.C. Ryle said this about this. Um, Henceforth, she, Mary, must daily remember that her first aim must be to live the life of faith as a believing woman like all other Christian women. Her blessedness did not consist in being related to Christ according to the flesh but in believing and keeping his word. Think about that. Mary did not have eternal life because she bore Christ in her womb. She didn't have eternal life because she was physically related to him. Any more than the Jews were saved because they were physically related to Abraham. Right? She had eternal life not because she carried Christ in her womb, she had eternal life because she trusted what he said and what he did. 
That he, in his work as her Savior and Lord, not just her earthly son. And that's a, that's a good reminder to, to us as, as well. If Mary, the mother of Jesus, received the forgiveness and the salvation of Christ by faith alone and for no other reason whatsoever, the same is true for us. Like, and so you have to ask yourself, are you trusting in are you honestly, in your heart right now, are you, are you trusting in Jesus and His work, what He did, what He did for your whole salvation? It's not you get in through Jesus and you stay in through your good works. It's not how it goes. You get in and you stay in and you will be in all for eternity because of what Jesus and Jesus alone did. And by faith, you are hanging on to that. And apart from that, you have no hope. So are you trusting in His righteousness and His perfect obedience in your place, as well as His death in your place? That's what Mary did. So when Jesus said, Behold your mother, He was showing us He can sympathize with every suffering we encounter. He loves us. And he's being obedient for us to the end. And he looks at his own mother and says, basically, do you believe this? You know? So in just a second, we're going to break up into groups and pray. And when you pray together in your groups, be real with each other. Like, confess and repent of any, anything else that you know in your heart of hearts you've been trusting in. If you don't, if you don't, know if you have ask the lord to reveal that to you like if you haven't been putting all of your hope and all of your confidence and your complete trust in what jesus has done and apart from him you have no hope confess that repent of that and put all your hope in christ thank him for his sympathy thank him for his love thank him for his obedience in your place y'all take a few moments and pray together